As you're taking your seats, if you would, please turn to Isaiah 27. Isaiah chapter 27. Been a little bit. Time to jump back into Isaiah. Uh, it's, I believe, page 587. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's also printed in the bulletin. You can find it. Google Isaiah 27. You'll get there if, if all else fails. But um, this is the last chapter in what is known as the Isaiah Apocalypse, the end of what is known as the Oracles Against Foreign Nations. So, without further ado, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them, as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain, as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its bows are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem." Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you might give us the ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, that you might give us hearts that are ready to respond to all of it. Help us to see our sin, but see our Savior. We ask it all in his name, Jesus. Amen. Does your faith in God last longer than your Christmas lights stay up? That was my question as I read Isaiah 27. It's a passage about judgment and mercy. Final judgment for the unrepentant and temporary discipline as well as final deliverance for his people. But is that enough? Enough to keep us going? Is it enough when the Christmas decorations get taken down? I don't know about you. I love Christmas lights. Days are getting shorter and colder, but there's this little something to put a spring in your step. 
almost makes the over-commercialization of Christmas worth it, right? I once heard of a small town in Alaska where the days can get very short in winter that asks its residents to keep the Christmas lights up for a long time to help combat discouragement. See, it's just a fact of life. Life gets harder when there's not another big thing, big holiday coming. And to be clear, I am not rebuking you for losing enthusiasm, if that's true of you. I'm simply saying this happens to us all. And I'm also asking, how do you get through? I think we get through the Wednesdays, the hump days of life, by remembering the promise of Sunday, Resurrection Day. The celebration of Jesus' resurrection and the anticipation of our own resurrection one day. See, when Isaiah wrote this, it sure looked like Israel was having a a hump day. A rough day that's reflected in verses 7 through 11, the present day section for all of them. So before and after that, Isaiah gives them a vision of the end. A A vision not just of the next Sunday but of the final resurrection day to come. So perhaps I started with the wrong question. It's not so much, does your faith last longer than the Christmas lights? But rather, can you still trust God once the Christmas lights go into storage? To answer that, I want to look at this under four headings. All of them are answering this question. What do these verses tell us about how God treats his people? Here we go. Number one, God is faithful to fight for you. God is faithful to fight for you. Verse one, you could group this verse with the ones that come before it in chapter 26 if you wanted. Either way, Isaiah 24 through 26, those chapters all lead up to this very well. You see there that God plans to judge the world, defeat his enemies, defeat death itself, host a grand feast for all his people. And in order to do that, he must defeat a monstrous enemy. In that day, verse 1 says, The Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, that or a similar phrase that occurs five times in this passage, they're all future-oriented, and you might say, Up until the very end, there will be an enemy. Will he be in the form of a serpent or a dragon or some kind of dinosaur-like monster? I don't know exactly. I tend to think not. But I know that Satan was a devious snake when we first meet him. And that while Leviathan was probably a real animal, estimates range from crocodiles to hippos to dinosaurs, the main point here is not to paint one static picture of Satan. Ah, if you see this, this is what he looks like. Ah, be on the lookout. The point is to represent what Barry Webb calls the whole monstrous sum of the world's evil. Leviathan is described three ways here, fleeing, twisting, and the dragon of the sea. Alec Moitier suggests that the fleeing points to his swift flight, the twisting or coiling, points to the way that snakes crawl. And then why this mention of the dragon of the sea, the sea, to suggest that this monster represents the powers of sky, land, and sea, the totality of things that frighten us. 
Another way to think of it. Israel thought their biggest problem at this time was Assyria or some other enemy of the weak. No, God says, it's a monster. A monster that looks very similar to Satan and all that he represents. And the point is not to frighten us, it's to encourage us. Why? Because this fleeing, coiling serpent, dragon, leviathan of the sea, he will meet his match. The Lord's hard, great, strong sword. He will punish and slay this great beast. The sea here, the dragon of the sea, The sea might represent chaos and danger. That's how Hebrews saw the sea. Just think about the story of Jonah, for example. Think about Revelation 21.1, and there was no more sea. It might also represent how God is going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of the serpent. But doesn't it also tell us that God fights for us? That the Lord executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all of our enemies. Does anyone need to remember that right now? Israel certainly needed it back then when everybody seemed to be picking on them, but don't we need it too? Do you know anyone, any friends who feel forgotten? overlooked, like no one cares, like no one understands my life, like the world is just stacked against me. You know, Maybe they're not saying, you're not saying, so-and-so is out to get me. Maybe they are. But at the very least, they might think that God is not intervening as quick as he should. As if we're fit to judge what God should and should not do at all times. And that can lead to to doubts. Maybe God is not willing to fight for me. You see, if you bear the name Christian, even if you feel unworthy of that name, then God has a vested interest in protecting you. Because if God fails to take care of you, then it looks like he can't. The Bible talks about that sometimes. This doesn't mean that you will never suffer hardship. But it does mean that God has not forgotten you. As David says in Psalm 56, 8, he counts all of our tears. He keeps them in a bottle. He writes them in a book. And just as surely as God promises to wipe away every tear, he also promises to fight and defeat every enemy. It may look bleak now. Surely looked bleak for Israel, but do not think that God has forgotten your pain, forgotten your plight. He knows. And He will one day make it all right, all good, all joyous. God is faithful to fight for you. Don't forget that when the tears and the troubles come. Secondly, we also see God is faithful to form you in spite of you. God is faithful to form you in spite of you. Verses 2 through 6. I played with a half dozen headings for this point. Uh, He is faithful to you in spite of you. No, that's not clear enough. He is faithful to sanctify you in spite of you. No, no, sanctify is not in the passage. He is faithful to, I actually wrote this down, fruitify you in spite of, oh, that's, 
that's way too cute. What am I trying to get at? That God will tend his vineyard. That's you, that's me, that's all of us who call him Lord. And cause you to bear fruit. He will surely do it. But let's first refresh our memories about another vineyard in Isaiah. Do you remember? If not, it's okay. It was a long time ago. Isaiah 5. It's a long chapter. Let's summarize. God is a vineyard. And he took good care of the vineyard. But the vineyard was horrible. It grew wild grapes. That's bad. So God said he would stop taking care of the vineyard. He would let him get stomped or whatever. That's basically what's happening to Israel in verses 7 through 11. But that's not what Isaiah says here in this part of Isaiah 26. Oh, excuse me, Isaiah 27, verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, already happier than Isaiah 5. Verse 3. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it or guard it night and day. This is not the God who ignores the vineyard, who lets them reap the fruits of their bad decisions. No, he's carefully tending it. Dare we say this garden is his labor of love. Verse 4, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. God says here, I, I have no wrath. This is not denying that God is a God of wrath any more than the wrathful passages or a denial that God is a God of love. Both of those are true. Wrestle with it more if it doesn't make sense yet. But this is a profound statement all the same. God is not, at the moment, expressing wrath towards this vineyard, even though, frankly, this vineyard deserves his wrath and more. They've rebelled in almost every way you can rebel. Idols infidelity, doubting God's might and provision and goodness and more. But today is not a day for wrath. He has pruned this vineyard. He has purified it because he loves it. He loves us, his people. In the rest of verse 4, let me let Webb explain. He says he almost wishes Someone would attack her so that he might have the satisfaction of defending her. Remember, this is poetry. Worry less about what this means for the hypothetical thorns and enemies. Worry more about what it says about the vineyard, God's people. He loves us. He will fight for us. And even then, verse 5 says about the enemies, the thorns, he will gladly let the enemies, the thorns, make peace with him and lay hold of his protection or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. In case you missed it, he repeats himself. Let them make peace with me. The good news of the gospel is that while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak and ungodly, at just the right time, Christ died for us. And God is not done pledging his love for this vineyard that represents his people. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. We who are the Israel of God, as Galatians 6 says, should take heart in this. Why does Israel, why, why is she going to bear fruit? 
Is it because they were basically good people? Is it because they received more remedial education? Is it because they tried harder? They felt really bad. They made the most of their second chance. Is it not because the Lord is her keeper and guardian? Isn't it because every moment he waters her? Because he searches for any thorn or briar that might threaten it, threaten her? Isn't it because God forms her into exactly what he wants her to be? And I have good news for you. God has not stopped doing that for his people. Philippians 1.6, some 700, 800 years later, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The potter will form the clay. Thank you, Tony, for that illustration earlier. He will form the clay just how he wants it, and he is doing that right now. The vine dresser will work his magic so that the vine bears good fruit. The sanctifier will sanctify you, make you holy, make you more like Jesus. And on one level, it has very little to do with you. Don't mishear me. I know how sanctification works. It's 100% God and 100% us. That's bad math and good theology. But what happens to that tricky equation without God's 100%? What would happen if God had not first loved us? You know, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. You see, it's not like God is stressed out, waiting for us to get our act together so that he can love us. It's more like this. His love pursues us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow. Pursue me all the days of my life. And his pursuing, never stopping, never giving up, always in forever love, as one children's story Bible puts it, it makes us into the people. He wants us to be. It regenerates us and allows us to grab hold of him in faith. It sanctifies us and makes us hate our sin and love our Savior. He is faithful to form you, to make you bear fruit in spite of you, in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your pride, in spite of your failure. Back in, way back in 2020, read something from a well-known pastor. He was encouraging pastors who saw folks walk away from church, their church, all churches, whatever. And he said, those broken whom the Lord calls will eventually figure out where to find grace. And if that's you, if that has been you at any point, especially in the last two years, then you need to know that the Lord will form and shape you, in spite of you. He loves every vine in the vineyard. He waters them every moment. He guards them night and day. And he will use seemingly insignificant, unworthy grapevines so that one day the earth will be full of fruit, full of grapes. One day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you are part of that plan. 
your fruitfulness and growth as a Christian is part of His plan. God loves His church more than you do. That is good news for you. God is faithful to form you in spite of you. And we also see thirdly that God is faithful to you even if He's mysterious to you. God is faithful to you even if He's mysterious to you. Verses 7 through 11. This is the only section without in that day. Probably because it's talking about Israel's present, not her future like the rest of the passage. Isaiah does this often. He gives them a glimpse of the future and then he jerks them back into the present, into the painful reality, the hard truths. Israel has been struck, slain, exiled by God's fierce breath. They deserved it, but it wasn't fun. And whether you deserve any misfortunes that you have received or not, then you were probably frustrated, doubting, maybe despairing. How can you not feel that way? Just a little. How can I be sure of God's love when He seems to send one trial after another? This is a perennial question, said one author 30 years ago. Another way to say it, this doesn't seem like love. This seems like punishment. This is all quite mysterious. And you see what God sends to punish some, He might use to purify others. But notice what God says in verse 7. The he here is God. The them is Israel or God's people. Verse 7. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? In other words, did Israel ever suffer as much as their captors or oppressors? Was their whole army ever wiped out in the Red Sea like Egypt's? Furthermore, did they ever suffer the way Assyria suffered in Isaiah 37, 36? A little preview of what's to come. You can read ahead later. Oh, it was hard, but it was a measured hardship. One author says God has always, quote, acted towards his people with restraint, not according to their deservings. Spellcheck doesn't like the word deservings, but I hope it gets the point across just in case it doesn't. Psalm 103, verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. He gives us what we don't deserve, His mercy. And He also promises atonement for us in verse 9. Now, He doesn't spell this out. The the hints of the cross are not seen here like they are other places in Isaiah, but this, this verse is actually pretty confusing. Essentially, the evidence of their repentance, it says, turning from sin, turning to God, that's what repentance is. It will be tearing down their idols, which will lead, it says, by this, it'll lead to God's atonement of their sins, which will lead to more faithfulness, less idols. In other words, obedience to God is sometimes its own reward because God is better than what the world can offer and because obedience means freedom from the negative consequences of sin. God will be faithful to prosper His people even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's mysterious, 
even if it feels painful for the moment, and even if God is punishing others at the same time. Because what do you see in verses 10 through 11? They are fortified, strong cities that are solitary, deserted. Their defenses did them no good. And God says he refuses to show favor or compassion to them because they lack discernment about who he is and his greater purposes. And again, all this is happening at the same time that God is disciplining, purifying his own people, giving them restrained hardships. Imagine two men or two women, both undergoing the same trial. One says, this is simply proof that God does not love me. I can never trust a God who leaves me in a situation like this. The other says, not what I would have chosen, but whatever my God ordains is right. He's been faithful to me for so many years. Despite so many sins and mistakes on my part, I I will trust him that this is good for me, even though I hate it right now. That second response is something like who I want to be when I grow up. Now, I realize I I am an example by virtue of my job and position, but I also don't want to be a hypocrite. And I am fully willing to admit that I am not a perfect example. I know that God is not just sovereign, but also good. (laughs) But my response to his mysterious ways, especially in the past two years, does not always show my belief in his goodness. And you know what's great about that. My doubts, my improper responses to God's goodness, they do not cancel the good, purifying work that he is doing in me and in you. Maybe all God is doing some days is showing me my sin, my impatience, my irritability so that he can make me a better version of me. But I can trust that God's discipline is good for me, even if it's mysterious to me. God is faithful to you, even if he's mysterious to you. And we also see, fourthly and finally, God is faithful to gather you. No matter where you flee, no matter where you're from, verses 12 and 13. Again, these are God's promises to his people. Our our sins, they matter. They might be many, but his mercy is more for those who trust in him. Remember, these, these aren't simply the final verses of Isaiah 27. They're the final verses of a whole section of chapters 13 to 27. The oracles against foreign nations, the Isaiah apocalypse as well. His judgment will stretch from shore to shore. So don't trust in other nations to deliver you. But his mercy will stretch just as far to those who trust in him. Verse 12 says, in that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. From the Euphrates all the way to Egypt, the original borders of the promised land. So wherever God's people are, within his bounds, he will find them. He will harvest them. He will pluck them out safely. And then the metaphor changes in the next verse. From harvest... To worship, 
from inside Israel to the four corners of the globe, practically. Verse 13, And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Trumpet seems to signal the final day, judgment day, which is also homecoming day for God's people. And not just those who stayed within Israel. Remember what's coming down for Israel very soon. Exile is coming for Isaiah's original audience. The writing was on the wall. Israel's empire was crumbling. But even exile could not separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What does exile represent? Does it mean that Israel's own failure in sin couldn't drag them beyond the reach of God's love? And does it also mean that the sins of their captors couldn't drag them too far from God? Why is this even on my mind? Because all of us are sinners who've been sinned against. Both are true. I was reminded of this recently when I read a story about a woman who had been pardoned. At first, it might sound scandalous, a woman who murdered a man, ultimately getting pardoned. Then there are more details. She said she feared for her life. She was just a teenager at the time, caught up into a life of prostitution. Not that we're excusing that, but how many teenagers consciously choose that? She had gotten a half dozen bad breaks in life before all this. And she had turned her life around, earning a bachelor's degree from prison with a 4.0 GPA. And even if we admit that the legal questions there are difficult, especially if we're a Christian who knows what Genesis 9 says about murder, says about capital punishment, even then, hope we can appreciate the words of the Christian governor who pardoned her, who said that she had become, quote, the picture of a redeemed life. All of that made me realize our own sins, the sins of others, oftentimes both, can drive us very far from home, very far from God, very deep into the far country that the prodigal son And others have visited. But as one author says, the point of all this is God's perfect harvesting of his true people so that not one is missing. The point is not that we are worthy or that we can make ourselves worthy. The point is that our perfect Savior is worthy of all our praise, all our gratitude, all our worship. This section begins with a God who searches in harvests, but it ends with a God who is worshipped. One author closed his comments on this chapter like this. Worship, God being acknowledged for who he is. Such worship is not an escape from a reality, but a return to it. And it is in returning to reality that the world, so long out of joint, will finally be made whole. Do we need more Christmas lights to keep us trusting, to keep us hoping? Or do we need more of the true light? Do we need more knowledge of who God is? 
We need to know that God will be faithful, faithful to fight for us, faithful to produce fruit in us, faithful even when his exact ways are mysterious to us, faithful even when we've fled, even when we've been seemingly forced into choices we never wanted. What do we need when we're not sure we can keep going? We simply need more of God, more knowledge of him, which produces more confidence in his loving character. Your willpower, your faith, your hope might have dried up, but God's power hasn't. Let us pray. God, you are good and your loving kindness to us, your steadfast love to us never fails. Help us to remember that during the dark night of the soul, during winter, literally or metaphorically. Help us to know that you are good. Your promises to us never fail. Make us a faithful people. Make us a people who reflect your light and your hope for our own sake, but also for the sake of those around us who are hurting, who are lost, who are wandering, who are dwelling in darkness and long to see the light whether they realize it or not. God be with us. Give us more of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.